about 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Almost through the Timothys. Again. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time of the year where we get to spend a little bit of time with our families. Father, we pray that you'd help us, Lord, to take the time that's given to us and spend it wisely. Help us, Lord, to meditate on you, think about you. Lord, help us to be thankful, Lord, for the, the greatest gift of all, salvation that was given to us so many years ago. Father, we thank you for it. Father, we know it's not just to, just to sinners, but saints as well. So, Father, we are thankful this morning. We just take a moment to say that. Father, pray that you'd now open our eyes that may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Father, pray that you bless your people wherever that today. I know... My brother Larry's out sick. Pray that you'd help him. Pray that you'd bless him and heal him. And those, uh, I know Sister Kim ain't feeling very good. Father, pray that you'd help your people. Strengthen them. Lord, I pray that you'd raise them up and they could be with us together again in the church house soon. Father, we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, 2 Timothy, a chapter 4. Uh, chapter 4 is what you would call Paul's last will and testament. Last Will and Testament, and uh, it's like an epitaph, epitaph, and uh, I'm sure everybody knows what an epitaph is, right? An epitaph is just something written on your gravestone, amen? And uh, I haven't figured out what I want on mine yet. Uh, uh, you know, the great question is, what do you want on your tombstone? One fellow said pepperoni and mushroom, amen? But uh, that's a pizza. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. I have one fellow in the front row laughing. What a blessing. Uh, all right, got my credibility as a preacher going on. Yes, we're good. Thank you. Now, like back in the day, you know, you got stories of uh, like Wyatt Earp, amen, in the wild western frontier in Dodge City, and Wyatt Earp lived in the town of Tombstone there. In the town of Tombstone, they had a paper in circulation they called the Tombstone Epitaph. <laughs> and... Uh, and one of those epitaphs is about a fellow named Lester Moore. In his epitaph, it said, Here lies the body of Lester Moore, four shots from a 44. No less, <laughs> no more. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, there's a bunch of epitaphs in the Bible, and I don't know if you've ever taken time to look at them. So before we get in there, let's look at a couple of Bible epitaphs this morning. Bible epitaphs, Second Chronicles uh, 21 this morning. Second Chronicles. Now, you ever stop and think about when it's, uh, when it's all said and done, what are they going to put on your epitaph, you know? You know. You know they'll, be, they'll be kind, like uh, they'll probably have your name and a date, two dates and a dash, and, but anything else. So, you know, you ever stop and think what they're going to put on your epitaph? Second Chronicles chapter 21. What a great topic for a Sunday school, amen? <laughs> One fellow said, uh, what is your life? It's that dash in between those two dates. That's all your life is. <laughs> Amen. Uh, you know, whatever. For me, it's uh, 1975 dash to whatever. Amen. 
Now, 2 Chronicles 21, 20. The Bible says, 30 and 2 years old was he when he began to reign. And he reigned in Jerusalem 8 years. And here's his epitaph. You ready? <laughs> and departed without being desired. That's a rough one, ain't it? Departed without being desired. <laughs> Man. Uh, they left and nobody missed him. <laughs> now here's another one. Look at 2 Samuel 23. 2 Samuel 23. Some Bible epitaphs. 2 Samuel 23. 11 to 12. Now this, uh, we're just looking at a couple of these so you get the idea that uh, this chapter 4 we're going to get into is... Uh, so it's a Paul's epitaph. It's a swan song. <clears throat> now here, Second uh, Samuel chapter 23 and verse 11. The Bible says, And after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. And the Philistines uh, were gathered together into a troop uh, where was a piece of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. There's your epitaph. He stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. Amen? How'd you like that for an epitaph? He stood in the midst of the ground and defended it. Say, what'd you do with your life? Well, not much. I just stood and I defended what God told me to defend. Amen? Defend your family. Defend the faith. Defend the King James Bible. Those are some things worth defending, isn't it? <laughs> be a good epitaph to have. Now notice that it says, and slew the Philistines, and the Lord wrought a great victory. Here's one. Look at Job. Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. Wake you up this morning with a little turn pages of the Bible here. By the way, uh, I think this is really how true wisdom comes. You say, what, through your preaching? No. <laughs> True wisdom comes through turning the pages of the Bible, amen? <laughs> That's how you really learn. Job chapter 19. Oh, here's an, I've got verse number 250. I don't think that exists. How about 25? <laughs> verse 25. <clears throat> Let's see here. Is that what we want? Yeah. Here's a, here's a great epitaph. For I know that my Redeemer liveth, amen, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though, after my, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. That's a great epitaph. Oh. <laughs> Interesting enough here in this passage, Job's premillennial. You see that? Job said in the latter day, uh, the Lord is going to stand upon the earth. Uh, as far as dates are concerned, Job's uh, the first book ever written in the Bible. Uh, he's, uh, he's before Abraham. And he's premillennial. He knew that God was going to stand upon the earth, and he knew that God was going to raise up that old body of his. And after worms had eaten his flesh, isn't that interesting? Wild skin worms. Look under a microscope; you got little creepy crawly things all over you. You know what they're doing? They're eating you. <laughs> Amen. I need to hire some more worms, I guess. <laughs> now here's an epitaph from Psalms. Look at Psalm 84. Psalm 84. Now, I know tombstones aren't cheap. Some, I mean, I know that whole burying thing has got to be a scam, amen? 
you know. That's why you got, if, if any reason to have life insurance, it's just so they can bury it decently. <laughs> On my epitaph, I, I thought maybe we could put, uh, if you can still read this, then the Lord hasn't come back. Because I believe when he comes back, <laughs> that, that epitaph's going to be gone. 8410, here's a great one. The Bible says, for a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. I mean, you believe that this morning? <laughs> How about this one? I had rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. You know who I think about when I read that verse? You're like, oh, you think about David or Jesus. No, I think about Brother Mickey. He would stand back there and he'd greet everybody that come in. Well, I'll tell you what. You know what he loved being? Just a doorkeeper. That's it. You go down here by the river and pass out tracks by the hundreds. See some old roughneck say, you'd never see him in church people but man he'd go down there he'd win them he saw he, man he he'd talk to jesus about it he talk, probably talked to jesus about the devil if the devil showed up amen but uh what a great epitaph i'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my god than to dwell in the tents of wickedness now here's a a, a, a very terrible epitaph look at jeremiah eight twenty. just a couple more try to kick off this chapter with a thud as, uh, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. A terribly truthful epitaph. 820. It's really sad. The Bible says the harvest is past, the summer has ended, but we are not saved. Because that's to Israel. Sure is. But practically speaking, that's that's this country. In a practical manner. Now here's a great epitaph. Uh, you know the verse, John chapter 3, verse 30? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's a great epitaph. Amen. You say, well, how, how do you quit your devilment? Well, you let him increase first, and then he'll run the devilment out of you. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Too many Christians trying to get rid of their own devilment and the power of the flesh can't do it. You can't beat the flesh with the flesh. What a great epitaph. You just get full of him. A lot of Christians are full of things, man. <laughs> they're full of politics. They're full of sports. They're full of, you know, whatever it is, their job. But, man, are they full of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit? Uh, here's one, Mark chapter 14, verse 8. That's a great one. Mark 14, verse 8. You say, preacher, well, you're just full of baloney some days, amen. <laughs> 14, verse 8. Here's a great one. She had done what she could. Amen. You know, uh, uh, that's an epitaph for Fanny Crosby. That's on her tombstone. She had to, I tell you what, a blind gal writing that many hymns are just loaded in your hymn book. Think God take an old blind gal and put the touch of God on her and bless us today. I mean, uh, sometimes we'll sing two of her hymns, you know, per, 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 for a Sunday. Sometimes more. She had done what she could. That'd be a great one to have for a Christian, wouldn't it? Say, what'd you do? I didn't do much. I just did what I could. I was thinking, I remember a number of years ago, that, that kind of concept grasped a hold of my mind, and I'm like, the Lord will never ask me to do what I cannot do. I know that's a really deep thought. Give me just a second to develop. The, but he won't. If, if you can't cut the grass, he'll never ask you to cut the grass. If you can't sing... He'll never ask you to sing. 
Now you make a joyful noise anyways, amen. But if you, uh, if, if you can't, uh, you know, if you can't give millions of dollars, he'll never ask you to give millions of dollars, will he? Uh, if your car breaks down, you're not a mechanic, he'll never ask you to, you know, take a starter out and replace it. But just do what you can. Doesn't that take the pressure off? Christian life, sometimes we're all worried about the Lord's going to ask us to do something, and we're like, the Lord's not going to ask you to do that. You can't. <laughs> and if he does ask you, he'll give you what you need to do it. She had done what she could. Amen? Some great epitaphs this morning, some not so uh, exciting, but in an epitaph, of course, something written upon your gravestone, it might be worthwhile to start thinking about what might be on yours. Amen. Soon this life will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. That's the greatest part about this local church right here. You say, what's that? This is the only thing that's eternal. Your house is not eternal. Your family, unless it's saved, is not eternal. See what I mean? This local church is eternal. Never ends. Everything done for Christ will last. And for some strange purpose, we get into... Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, we see Paul's last epitaph. And uh, whatever Paul's doing here in 2 Timothy 4, he's doing it in threes. That's an interesting thing you get to 2 Timothy chapter 4. He does a bunch of things in threes. And uh, you'll notice in verse 2, right out of the gate. In 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4 and verse 2, uh, you'll notice he says, preach the word. Amen? That's what... That's what young Timothy's supposed to do. That's what a pastor is supposed to do. He's supposed to preach the word. Uh, what song were we singing uh, this morning? And I was being funny about it. Don't say all of them. But, but he, he's supposed to preach the word, not his opinion. Amen? Amen? I don't know. It's, I was cutting up about something. I know you find that hard to believe, you know. I've ruined every song for my children as they came up. I've inserted something that probably shouldn't go there, you know. <laughs> some of it's pastoral, some of it may be borderline not. <laughs> you know, like on, uh, that song, uh, what is it that one group sings, Don't Look Back? It turned into Don't Smoke Crack, you know what I mean? So, but stuff like that. <clears throat> but in uh, verse 2, he says, preach the word. And notice how uh, he does it in threes. He says, uh, uh, t- Paul tells Timothy to preach the word. He says, reprove him rebuke them, and exhort them. You see that? Verse 2, there's three ways in which you're supposed to preach. And uh, notice also in verse 3 and 4, when he gives Timothy a charge, he says, now they're not going to endure sound doctrine. You believe that this morning? I do too. Amen. You believe uh, that in the last days, people will not endure sound doctrine? Yeah, we're seeing it, aren't we? Amen. That's like, that's a give me. That's like, duh, right? You know that, you see it. But notice this. This is how they do it. They're going to heap to themselves teachers, number one. They're going to turn away from the truth, number two. And they're going to turn unto fables. That's feel-good stuff. Fables. All right? And then in verse 5, this is just all introductory material. He says, watch thou in all things, but in three different things. He says, you're supposed to watch. You're supposed to endure afflictions. Do the work of an evangelist. And make full proof of thy ministry. It's threes all the way through. <clears throat> so Paul uses three throughout the passage. And let's just go ahead and uh, jump right into it. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, 
verse 1, Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. So the first thing I see here, and you'll notice here that there's two judgments here that are a thousand years apart. Two judgments. Now one of them is the resurrection of the just. You see that? Resurrection of the just. That's Daniel chapter 12. And uh, that will be judging the just. And the other one is uh, the judgment of the unjust at the second advent of Jesus Christ. All right, so you know this, but the first one is when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds. That's 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17. And he takes us out of here. That's the first one. That's uh, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. And his bride are the ones that have been quickened, right? The quick and the dead. That's 2 Timothy 4, 1. Uh, the quick. You say, what is quick? That means alive. Um, 2 Timothy 4, 1 says, who shall judge the quick? Look at Ephesians chapter 2 real quick. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 2. I'm trying to keep you guys awake, man. You're too much Christmas shopping. <laughs> you know, as a kid, you get excited for it. An adult, you're like, is it over yet? <laughs> you know, you, t you, 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 uh, you entertain those thoughts. Of, can we cancel it for one year? And the answer is no. <laughs> Never can. <laughs> All right. Uh, Ephesians 2.1. Now notice this. And you hath he quickened. What does that mean? Made alive. Why? You was dead. Amen. Who were dead in trespasses and sins. That's it. That's the one category. Paul talks about to who shall judge the quick. That's the one category. And then the dead. And, of course, uh, that's quickened by the Spirit of God. That's uh, right there. We're at Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 6. Now, the other category, look at Revelation chapter 20. A review for most of you. Revelation chapter 20. Now listen, a Christian who knows their Bible will not be bamboozled by anything in this world. Amen? You ought, you ought to study your Bible. You ought to read your Bible uh, so you won't be deceived. You say, why? You are commanded to be not deceived. Be not deceived. And uh, you can't be deceived by this world. And there's only one way to do it. It's not education, but it's through your Bible. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11. The Bible says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead, there it is, the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works. Uh, verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast in the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So you notice the quick back in verse 1, that's me and you. If you're saved today, um, we say this, uh, we say about someone who's slow, they say he's not real quick. <laughs> Well, that's a, that's a trite use of the word, amen? But if you're saved, well, guess what? You've been quickened. That's the quick, <laughs> right? And uh, you are spiritually quickened when you are born again. That's uh, John chapter one, 12, uh, chapter 1, verse 12. I know you know that, but I'm going to read it to you anyways. John chapter 1, verse 12. 
Bible says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power, become the sons of God, even them that believe on his name, verse 13, which were born, not of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. All right, as soon as you were born again, your spirit was quickened and it was made alive. All right, back to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. The Bible says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who should judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. See that? Verse 2, preach the word. Now, to preach the word, you got to have it. <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're going to preach the word, you got to have it. And if you don't have the word of God, you can't preach it. And that's why so many people, they don't have preachers. They have speakers. Speakers. Sounds like that... Uh, Muppet character. Well, that's Beaker, not Speaker. But anyway, <laughs> you probably do a better job than some speakers I've heard. Amen. But uh, you got to have the word to be able to preach it. And if you don't have the word of God, you can't preach it. Uh, a fellow might have an oratorical ability. He might, uh, he might see what some Christians confuse is they confuse the ability to speak. They confuse a mastery of the English language with the ability to preach. And that's not it at all. Just because a guy can get up and give some stellar illustrations and he can get up and he can woo you and he can reel you in and he knows exactly when to pause, right? The dramatical pause and he's polished and he has the right frame, the right haircut, has the right everything. The Bible calls that good words and fair speeches. You got to watch out for good words and fair speeches, all right? But a guy might have an oratorical prowess about him, linguistical prowess, but he, he doesn't have the Word of God, you know what he can do? He just talks well. That's it. Now watch this, and that's what Christians, unfortunately, and that's what you have to watch out for as a Christian, that you're just not wanting someone that can speak well. That was, that was tough. <laughs> Amen. Okay, well, work on your speaking. <laughs> now notice what he says here he says, uh, he says how to preach the word Verse 2 Preach the word Be instant in season Out of season Reprove Rebuke Exhort With all long suffering and doctrine So he said first of all Reprove them Reprove them So a pastor's job is to reprove What's reprove? It means to convince someone Of something that they're doing Kind of like when you tell your kid No Stop it <laughs> No, don't do that. And uh, that's wrong. That's reproof. And then there's rebuke. They say, what's that? That's laying it on them. That's laying the weight on them. That's putting a slap on them. Amen? You get to rebuking Christians in this age, they, uh, they jump out the windows and run. This age does not do well with rebuke. You say, why? Well, if you look back, we took all the corporal punishment out of the public schools. So now you have at least two generations now that has no idea that wrong choices are painful. See, when I was uh, in school, a little different thing, a little different setup, a little different situation, and at home, when I did something wrong, there was pain associated with sin. So now in prison, you also have several generations now of people that have no pain associated with their choices. That's where you and I live. Good morning. All right, but that's rebuke. That's laying the weight on them. That's putting the slap on them. That's putting the crack on them. Not like doing crack, but that's, you know, that's putting the crack on them. 
And then he says to exhort, and that exhort means to stir up, lift them up, amen, stir them up. And you notice how you do the exhorting. Paul says you do it with long-suffering and doctrine. You say, what do you mean? Long-suffering, it's going to take a long time to accomplish the stirring up. That preacher has to be long-suffering with his exhortation. He can't stir the people up and expect everyone to walk out of here on cloud nine. It might take 10, 15, 20 years. Preacher's got to be in it for the long haul. You know, if we judge church growth and attendance by modern business, this place is a flop. But this thing's eternal. After the Lord burns up this place, we'll still be in the body of Christ. See what I mean? That's the difference. The saddle back out here back in the day ran 30, 40,000. You say, are they saved? I don't know. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but they're not preaching the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. They got everything in the world going on. That ain't, that ain't eternal. That's a bunch of fluff. You know how people stop going to church here a lot of times? There's not a lot of fluff. <laughs> Every once in a while, we'll fluff it up a little. Amen. Well, about Harvest Fest, we have some good fluff there. That's good stuff. Amen. You know, teens uh, every once in a while will have some fluff. <laughs> but this church isn't built on fluff. It's built on preaching. It's built on feeding the flock of God. All right, now, you have to do it by long-suffering. And not only that, if you're going to exhort people, that preacher is supposed to do it with doctrine, the Bible says. Now, you exhort people by preaching about the second coming of Jesus Christ. You know what I notice when you preach messages specifically designed about the second coming of Jesus Christ or doctrine message, man, they kick like a mule. You say, what does that mean? There's power in that exhortation when it's sound doctrine. Now, I'm not saying that the other preaching doesn't kick like a mule, but there's something about preaching about Jesus Christ coming back, and are you ready that kicks something fierce? See what I mean? When you lift Jesus Christ up, things begin to happen. Bible says, if I be lifted, I'll be drawn from the earth. He said, if I be lifted up, I'll draw all men unto myself. You see that? And that's, uh, that's how you exhort people by preaching on doctrine. You preach on the virgin birth. Amen. What a great time of year to preach on the virgin birth. You can't be saved if you don't believe in the virgin birth. Because if Jesus Christ was not virgin born, that means he was born sinfully. I'm glad that he was born of a virgin. Amen. What a pure birth. And you preach on these things, and, and, uh, and you'll notice the progression. Uh, you, what, what, I believe what you have here is the progression of growth even in a pastor or a preacher. Look at this. Uh, first of all, when a preacher starts off, he'll, uh, he'll reprove them. Two applications, I believe, you see here. And uh, a preacher begins to preach, uh, he'll, uh, he'll start to reprove the people. And after he gets to convincing people and himself that he can preach, then he'll start rebuking them. <laughs> you see it? That's the progression of a preacher. And that's a great thing because if a preacher won't rebuke anybody, then he cannot preach. You've got to remember the application of truth is both positive and negative. Thankful for the great gift that we'll preach about this morning of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what you know what also is the truth. Many times you're not right with the Lord. And your fellowship is impeded by your inability to do right, confess your sins and get right. And the preacher uh, will need to preach on that stuff. And remember, if he's preaching on it, guess what? He's human too. Yeah. And the messages I preach, I got to deal with them all week long, man. <laughs> and some of the stuff I preach, good grief. That stuff haunts me a month later. 
And the devil goes, <laughs> you think you're a preacher. You're preaching about that. You, you're just so fake, 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 fake. Amen. But, uh, uh, but if a preacher won't rebuke anyone, then he can't preach. And then finally, if you look at the progression, it goes reproof and then rebuke. And then uh, in time, a preacher, if he's listening to the Lord, if he's learning, if he's continuing to change as he should, a preacher should change. He shouldn't change to suit his people. He should change to suit the Lord, just like you. You should never change in your Christian life to suit me. That'd be ridiculous. Because you'd all have to gather at my house during the NASCAR circuit and watch it at night. That'd be boring. I mean, <laughs> then the whole community would be talking. You see what I mean? You don't change to suit me. You don't change to attain some standard that I may or may not have. You change in your Christian life to please the Lord. And if you're not changing, you're not right. You say, well, I've always believed this. Okay, fine, maybe in your doctrinal beliefs, but in your, in your lifestyle and how you live, would you not agree that the, the longer you're a Christian, you ought to get closer to the Lord? And if you get closer to the Lord, you have to admit that you weren't as close to Him as you thought you were. And that's because you were doing something that wasn't right. Or you were omitting something that you shouldn't. So you see what I mean? You should continually change uh, for him. And uh, a preacher in time should learn how to exhort. And he'll stir the people up through exhortation. And of course, like we said, it'll have to be done through long suffering. And that means the preacher will have to suffer long with the flock. You know, Bible says over there in 1 Peter chapter 5, to feed the flock that is among you. I got a kick over the years. I've been in, um, listened to preaching, been a part in the audience, if you can say it like that. Of, it seemed like the preacher was preaching, but not to anybody in the church. You ever, you ever, you ever experienced that? You're like, who's this guy preaching to? You know, there's this big problem but you're not figuring it out. That's what happens when preachers begin to preach about problems that are not in the church. See what I mean? That's called straightening pictures. Say, so what happens? You all go out and you don't get nothing. But it takes time. It takes long suffering. And that preacher have to learn to edify the flock through doctrines, stirring up the people, and that'll exhort them. But those three things right there are absolutely needed and necessary in preaching of the Word of God. Now, the best way, uh, here's, here, here's how the preachers do it. This is, this is what I've had to learn, and this is any preacher I have to learn. The best way to cut someone is to get them laughing. Amen? I'm giving you some behind the scenes. This is how preachers do it. The best one to get someone laughing and rolling, and then you stick them. Amen? And nothing wrong with turning your back and walking away, right? But you, you get them laughing, you get them, and you, yeah, you just stab them. That's how preachers are supposed to do it. You know what this book is? It's a sword. Amen? That's a tactic a preacher should use. Get them laughing and then just turn around and stick them. Amen. Now, that's like a bullfight. You ever watch these bullfights? You ever watch these matadors prance around? Good night. I mean, all dressed up in red and... Fancy outfits and hats and, you know, curly little mustaches and all that. and Shoes that I would never wear, you know what I mean? But the greatest thing in the bullfight is the matador. I just, I'm trying to draw an illustration or paint a picture for you. And when the matador, you know what he does? He gets that bull so wound up into a frenzy. And you'll see that bull if they go up close. 
I'd be like frothing. He'll have like snot, you know, dripping out of his nose and just frothing and just, oh, he's mad, right? That's like preaching. That matador's like, ole. <laughs> you know, whoo, nope, just kidding. <laughs> he comes over this way and does this little twirly job there and flip and flop and all that other stuff. And a good matador, he'll take that cape and he'll swing that thing around. And you know what they'll do? He'll turn his back to that bull. And that gets the crowd all just charged right up. No fear. And a good matter, he'll take that cape and swing that thing around. And when he turns his back on the bull, all the tension is, uh, just goes on what the matador has done. So uh, what a preacher does is he, he gets them going, and then he sticks them. That's the job of a preacher. And uh, you stick them, you just turn around and walk back to the pulpit, and you let them bleed. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> just like a bullfighter. That's some good preaching there. It's kind of bloody, but it's kind of cool too. Amen. Now, 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Now, if you like preaching, that's good stuff. Preach the word, be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. Now, doctrine is a very important period. Uh, I've had people come up to me and said, uh, uh, you keep talking about sound doctrine, sound doctrine. We know all about sound doctrine. And then they run down the road to a place that doesn't preach sound doctrine. Help yourself, free country, Amen. But sound doctrine is absolutely important in the life of the believer. Whether or not you get it here or not, you're going to have to get sound doctrine. Because if you don't have sound doctrine in your preaching, it's going to produce bad fruit. And if you don't have sound doctrine in your preaching, you're not going to be able to grow the way that you should. All right? <clears throat> now, you notice why you teach doctrine, why you should preach doctrine here, why you should reprove, and why you should rebuke. Um, well, of course, we know that the Word of God is the Bible. That's John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word of God is made up of words, right? Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy Word is settled in heaven. But you'll notice he told Timothy what, what he told him to do in verses 2 to 5. 2 to 5. When a preacher turns from sound doctrine, what they're going to generally turn to, and this is so applicable in the day and age you and I live in because these are the latter times. But when a preacher turns from sound doctrine, they are going to turn towards teaching. I'll say it again. When a preacher turns from sound doctrine, and the reason a preacher of today will turn from sound doctrine is because he's going to start making people in the pew mad. And he doesn't really have a backbone that God gave uh, a brass monkey, so he begins, to he begins to teach instead of preach sound doctrine. You say, well, you can preach sound doctrine without making people mad. You don't know what you're talking about. You've never preached a message in your life behind a pulpit. You cannot preach the second coming of Jesus Christ. You cannot preach the virgin birth. You cannot preach the, uh, the, uh, the doctrine of last times. You cannot teach the doctrine of the Holy Ghost, which we're doing on Sunday nights, and not clip somebody's wings along the way. And we usually, 99% of the time, when preachers turn from sound doctrine, they're tired of getting it in the neck from the pew. But they turn towards teaching. And that's very important. You'll see this in this chapter. And uh, look at verse 3. It says, for the time will come. You see that? Now look back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, this know also that in the last days perilous 
times shall come. So, of course, the context is talking about the last days, the last days within the church, not talking about Walmart, not talking about Myers, not talking about walking down the street. It's talking about inside the body of Christ in the local church house. Talking about men being seducers, waxing worse and worse. That's verse 13 of chapter 3. And so that's why Paul is warning them on the scriptures. You've got to see that. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15, 16, 17, he talks about the last days. He talks about men being deceived. And then he warns you about the scriptures before going into chapter 4, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, so forth and so on. Now look at uh, 2 Timothy 4, 3. The Bible says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. Now take your Bible, go to Ephesians chapter 4. I'll show you this thing. Ephesians chapter 4. Now just because someone doesn't preach like I do does not mean they have itching ears. We're not talking about a delivery method. We're not talking about an oratorical uh, set or a method of preaching. We're talking about what they are preaching. The Bible says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 is talking about the gifts of men that God gave the church, the body of Christ. And this thing is a, definitely a picture of the church age and how the church age is going to run. You see it right in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. And all these things were given at certain times in the church age before the second coming of Christ. These gifts were men that were given. Verse 11 says, and he gave some apostles. You see that? That's the first thing on the list. And some prophets. That's the second. And some evangelists. That's the third. And some pastors. Fourth and teachers. Fifth. So the apostles ended for sure. Acts 28. The apostles died out. They end for sure. Acts chapter 28. Now they had some New Testament prophets. Remember, that's the second group. And uh, then they had some evangelists. Now the time and period of evangelists that is most noted in church history is 1750 to 1950. 1750 to 1950, you see that thing progress and come along here, and you see the use of evangelists even in American history. Now we know it started over in uh, the west, uh, east, and came west, because that's how the Holy Spirit travels, Amen. It goes from uh, east to west. <clears throat> but uh, evangelist 1750 to 1950, no doubt the last biblical evangelist, stay with me now, everyone's got an opinion and that's fine, you're welcome to it. The last biblical evangelist was no doubt Billy Graham. No one gathered the crowds that Billy Graham gathered. Nobody. Billy Graham could gather twenty to 30,000 at a crack with no effort whatsoever. You say, well, he apostatized. Yes, he did. But you can't mistake the fact that God was on him like a fan. God was on that man like a fan, and where he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, and where he used the King James Bible, God continued to blow on him. And people got saved by the thousands. And since Billy Graham, all this hocus-pocus, dominocus over here, hither, and yon, and all this charismaniac stuff ain't even worth news. You pack out 30,000 in Anaheim, California, have 15,000 professions of faith, knock yourself out. That's what we're talking about, 1950. 1950. Uh, now, the last biblical evangelist, no doubt, was Billy Graham. 
Uh, but like I said, unfortunately, he went into apostasy. And still, going into apostasy, not excusing it, uh, saw more people, led more people to Jesus Christ than you and I and the next thousand people will ever do. You see what I mean? You hear people from time to time, they'll crack all, not me, man. I don't want to get in the devil's way. It was said, uh, the old preacher said that uh, uh, Dr. Bob Jones Sr., great preacher, another great preacher, is preaching, pastoring two churches by the time he was 12. You say, I don't believe it. Yeah, things were different then, weren't they? They're having babies at 15. <laughs> but he was pastoring two churches between 12 and 13 and 14. It was said old Dr. Bob Sr., who was a man who loved the King James Bible and taught it straight as an arrow. He got, uh, he got the belly aching about, Bob jo or about uh, Billy Graham. And within a week or so, he fell down a set of stairs and busted a bunch of bones. You say, what do you think about all that? Well, probably best not to leave God's preachers alone. I mean, they rise and fall to their master. They don't rise and fall to me. But the last biblical evangelist, no doubt, was Billy Graham, 1950. Uh, and at that time, about that time, uh, uh, if you back up about 30 years, in 1920, down in the south, you had Mordecai Ham. Some of you have heard that name. Great evangelist. Great evangelist. Thousands and thousands upon thousands saved. And in the north, you know who you had? Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday. Now, since uh, Christians don't read too much of church history these days, these are just fantasy facts and figures. But the true fact is, is you had Mordecai Ham, the evangelist from the south in 1920. He had Billy Graham up in the north, uh, Billy, uh, Billy Sunday up in the north. And uh, most people hated Billy Graham because he was, uh, he was not like the normal uh, stuffed shirt preachers. Uh, he'd take his coat off. He'd run. Uh, he'd tell jokes from the pulpit. <gasps> you know, back then, I was like, oh, God is in his holy temple. You know, how dare you take your coat off, you know? Just committed, the, you know, brought Ham to a Jewish wedding or something. But uh, Mordecai Ham preached one day in Charlotte, North Carolina. And when he preached that day down around 1920 in uh, uh, North Carolina, uh, Billy Sunday was saved under his ministry. And these are probably two of the last great evangelists that America ever saw. I mean, we're talking thousands of people saved. Billy Sunday go into a place and he'd shut the bars down. You say, uh, oh, there's a great revival over there, wherever they had it. Yeah, and any bars get shut down? <laughs> uh, the last place they uh, pro professed to have some kind of revival, and I don't give a rip what you think about it, but... Uh, you know why they finally had to stop it? Because the kids are getting too far behind in school. <laughs> uh, how about you can't charge kids for tuition if you got a revival going on? <laughs> right? I mean, these guys, Mordecai Hammond, go in there, and they'd shut the bars down. They'd shut the movie houses down. I remember as a kid, uh, uh, my dad uh, cleaned uh, for the ISD over there. I remember they had the big old drive-in theater back there. I remember as a kid, you know, going back there, because they used to have a fence so you couldn't see it. And he'd drive by that thing, and I'd take a peek over that fence and see what everybody's watching there. But they'd go into a town like that, they'd shut all that stuff down. They'd shut the schools down. They'd shut the bars down. Uh, they'd, shut, they'd shut all the houses of ill repute down. I mean, they'd leave a town. The town was changed. You try that today. You, 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 you go up to, the, uh, I'll say it right, Jack's there in the corner, and say, we're going to have a revival meeting, and we're wondering if you could shut down for a month. Or how about just shut down and, and, and <laughs> they laugh at you and like, oh, we'll help you serve communion, buddy. <laughs> That's what they do. 
but they go into these places, they shut it down. Uh, and probably two of the last greatest evangelists America ever saw was Mordecai Ham, Billy Sunday, and no doubt the last evangelist that God blew and breathed upon here uh, was uh, Billy Graham. And from that point on, uh, what you have is a bunch of preachers that go around and preach to other churches. You say, well, I know evangelists, he preached some really good sermons. I didn't say God's not blessing him for what he does. But you're not seeing the evangelistic process. You're not seeing God using evangelists. You know what you see now? I'm just saying most men are not evangelists that are in evangelism. Uh, what you see, uh, that verse in the church age, uh, next what has happened is you have pastors. Ephesians 4.11, we're following the progression of that. Wow, I went over my time. i got to stop now. Sorry about that. And we'll pick that thing up right at pastors. Right at pastors. Yeah, right? Yeah. 